Hey, welcome to the Doc Porter Podcast. I'm Dave McVeigh, co-writer, along with my buddy Jim Ballone. Uh, thanks for choosing us. Every week we'll be dropping a new chapter, maybe even two, of our 2021 novel, The Doc Porter, which is set on Mackinac Island, Michigan, read by me. When we published the book in 2021, we really had no idea it would take off. It ended up winning a Michigan Notable Book Award and was an Amazon bestseller for like at least a few minutes. Uh, it seemed to have struck a chord, and it's been pretty amazing to see the whole thing take off. So why are we giving the book away on a podcast when we can also sell it on Audible, which we are selling it on Audible? That's actually a pretty good question. Um, in fact, now that you mention it, let's just forget this whole thing. I'm kidding. We're giving it away because we are building up to something really special. Um, coming in August 2023, we're releasing the prequel to The Doc Porter called Somewhere in Crime. In Somewhere in Crime, we go back even further to the summer of 1979. Mackinac Island was the backdrop for a Hollywood movie called Somewhere in Time, starring Christopher Reeve and Jane Seymour. The hero of the Doc Porter, Jack, was 11 that summer, and he was the paperboy. He ends up trying to solve a cold case murder while bumbling in and out of the Somewhere in Time production. So anyway, enjoy the Doc Porter and get ready for Somewhere in Crime, which is coming in August of 2023 to Amazon and the Mackinac Island Bookstore, and hopefully other outlets, TBD. Thanks again for listening. Chapter 3, Dock Borders, June 15, 1989. I slid the Instamatic camera back in my pocket. It was already a pretty eventful morning. Vicky, the swimmer from state, Aaron, the Irish smartass, a bike gone missing. I hadn't ridden a single suitcase and already I had a few stories for the boys. I heard a commotion and looked up. The island version of a Mongol horde was approaching, all on Schwinn one-speed bikes with reinforced steel baskets. They weaved wildly, cutting one another off, cackling like lunatics. Bike tires skidded across the dock, and bungee cords were spun and tossed like Spanish bolas. It was a loud scene, but one that would be repeated boat after boat, day after day, all summer long. These boys did not know the meaning of a quiet entrance. A long, horrifying skid scattered a family of seagulls as Smitty, clad in his yellow Woodside-in golf shirt, made a grand entrance. Smitty was transformed since our fudge-scamming days. He was now solid and strong, with a long shock of dark hair that often covered his soulful brown eyes. Smitty was an anomaly as a dock porter, as he was the only year-round islander. For reasons I never entirely understood, most dock porters were college types, or at the very least, looked like college types. It was the unwritten policy of the hotels to hire mainly from Midwest universities. Perhaps it was some delusional pipe dream that today's dock boarders would become tomorrow's management, thus creating a funnel for what they used to call future leaders. But to my knowledge, this never happened. Not once. Dock boarders hauled luggage and hustled tips. Managers tried, with utter futility, to manage them. It would have been a wholly unnatural career progression, akin to moving from bank robber to bank teller. But Smitty was no college boy. Unlike the rest of us, he didn't leave at the end of the summer. In the winter, only the toughest of the tough stayed on the island, grinding it out with construction jobs and a lot of Pabst Blue Ribbon, long before it was a hipster cocktail. 
They rode snowmobiles, which were legal in the winter, and traveled to the mainland and back over an ice bridge for supplies. In short, year-round islanders were badasses, and Smitty owned it with pride. He hopped off his bike and began unloading luggage from the cart. What's the word of the day, jackass? Money, I said. Dirty, filthy, beautiful money. This is going to be our best summer ever. Something about the chaotic wake-up call, the vision of the Gaelic goddess, and the perfect morning air had me elated. The hangover was blissfully evaporating. What's the 911 on that waitress I saw you with last night? Was it Allison, cheerleader from Central? He cocked his head. Was that her name? Hey, wait, Andy? Andy, right? Allison? Al, Al... He trailed off, visibly contorting, desperately trying to recall the previous night's escapades. I allowed him a moment to twist in the cool breeze, then bailed him out. Vicky, and she's a swimmer from state. Vicky, right, I knew it was early in the alphabet. Early in the alphabet? That was Smitty. Hardworking, street smart, a million laughs, yes, yes, and yes. But a deep intellect? Not particularly. A.J. Valdaccio crashed the recap, grabbing Smitty in a friendly headlock. And it's 411, little Einstein. As we rolled the cart further down the dock, A.J. hopped on, hands on hips, posing like a Roman Caesar. With his strong Italian profile and Tyrian purple golf shirt, it almost worked. A.J. worked for the Huron Inn. Yes, he hauled luggage, but in his heart, he was an actor. Two summers ago, he'd driven to Los Angeles to audition for a soap after getting noticed by a local Detroit talent scout. The rumor was they liked him and wanted to show him off to the network executives. But his old man was sick, plus his sister was having troubles on the home front, plus it was a heck of a long way from home, plus, plus, plus. AJ carried a laundry list of reasons for missing the callback, and we'd heard them all, often after a long night of carousing. AJ could sing, play guitar, dance, and do impressions. This was long before the internet demystified talent and showed us all that it wasn't all that magical. But in conservative Michigan in the late 80s, it was as exotic as a birthmark on your face shaped like Florida. He may have passed on his big break in Hollywood, but he made damn sure to make up for it on the island. Every night he put on his own show, turning the bars, beaches, and employee dorms into an audacious one-man show. Sweating wildly, manic, talking fast, laughing with loud bursts that cut through the night like a steel machete of fun. He could nail Billy Joel's Piano Man and croon Sinatra and Dean Martin with a subtlety that was mind-blowing to a bunch of lowbrow porters who could barely belt out Wild Thing on key. He would often commandeer the drums of the house band. They had no idea what they were getting into until it was too late, and their hippy-dippy, female-friendly cover of Hotel California morphed into speed metal. AJ knew he was good. He also knew he might never get the chance to prove it on the big stage. But boo-fucking-who, as the saying goes. There were worse curses than being good-looking, funny, and talented. The guys sauntered to their appointed positions along the dock as if in a rehearsed ballet, as AJ checked luggage tags, scrounging for a score. Maybe something fancy and upscale like Louis Vuitton or Hartman. Even better, something tagged with his hotel. Foster Dupre, the Chippewa Hotel porter, glided to a halt on his beast of a bike, which was adorned with faded vintage luggage tags. The basket of his bike was a piece of modern art, bent and rebent, formed like metal clay from the weight of the thousands of suitcases he'd ridden. 
Foster was 33 now, with the small but solid build of an Apollo astronaut. His sun-creased face showed the mileage of over a decade in the sun, but still he moved like a confident young cat, always with a slight smile on his face, as if he were in on an industrial-sized joke. "'Morning, dipshits,' he said. "'Morning, master,' we returned in unison. Foster made every dock porter he ever trained promise that, once a day, for the rest of their career, they'd address him as master. Foster was an enigma. If the rumors were true, a fat family trust awaited him when he earned his college degree. All he had to do was strap on the books and graduate, and he'd be on Easy Street. But he'd gotten hung up on second-year Spanish for ten years. There was also contradicting rumors that the secret millionaire bit was a bullshit story he and some buddies concocted in a bar in the late 70s. He taught many of us the tricks of the trade, and he was now content to let us have our time in the sun. While we privately debated what was truth and what was legend, he did his thing. Mackinac Island in the summer and Breckenridge in the winter. He was an old-school resort rat, a picker, following the seasons and harvesting suitcases. Foster was joined by a tall beanpole of a kid checking over a spiral notebook. This was Spangler. He wore thick glasses and black dad socks pulled up high. With his khaki cargo shorts and bright red golf shirt, it was a ridiculous look, but he managed to pull it off. Sometime in the distant past, his name was Harold Riney, but A.J. reminted him Spangler after his favorite Ghostbuster. It stuck like glue. The guy didn't look strong enough to ride a lady's handbag, but he surprised us all with his logical approach to stacking bags, and eventually, he could hold his own. Spangler spent his time in the off-season as a journalism major, with dreams of becoming a reporter. To us, this was hilarious, as he always managed to arrive on the scene five minutes late for any reportable event. When President George Bush unexpectedly visited the island for a political conference, Spangler was downstate at a vintage book convention. And there was the time he hauled Detroit rock and roll legend Bob Seger's luggage. Oblivious, Spangler spent his time with Rock and Bob blathering about the songwriting genius of Bruce Springsteen, Seeger's arch rival. No tip. Lately, he'd been obsessively learning jokes, he said, to be more like AJ. I bought the world's worst thesaurus, he said as he walked up. Not only is it terrible, it's also terrible. <laughs> he giggled hysterically. Smitty stared at him blankly. I don't get it. Has anyone seen my bike, I asked. I detected a few snorts and stifled laughs. When was the last time you saw it, Spengler asked. Retrace your steps. Last night, I gave Vicky a ride and we crashed on a luggage cart over there behind the snack shop. Pulling up next on a garish bright red bike was Sean Superfly Karma. Fly for short. Fly played up the scrappy black Detroit kid angle, but it was all an act. His dad was an auto executive. Fly grew up comfy in the suburbs and studied engineering. He leaned his bike on his kickstand and double-checked a notepad. New guy's coming today. Eddie Belosky plays football at Michigan. Belosky, I said. Nice. Sounds like a lineman. Let's call him Bull. Bull, he said. I like it. I hereby claim him as my loyal protege, Fly exclaimed. I'm showing this big homie the ropes. My very own Polish servant. God be praised. Smitty looked over. Perfect. We let Bull handle the unloading, we kick back and retire in style. Retire? Smitty, we're in our prime, I said. I'm a luggage-hauling chimp, said Smitty. Please, Jack, tell me this isn't my prime. I blinked. 
You're not just some burned-out skycap hustling tips at Detroit Metro. You're a dock porter, man. Have some pride. Nope. Did some thinking. This is my last summer. I'm moving to Vegas, and I'm marrying a stripper. I read that's where they're from. I shot him a look. I was a fan of the original Batman TV series. For my money, Batman without Robin was just boring and kind of lonely. I stood up on the cart. This is where we belong, I gestured to the luggage. This is the stuff those tourists couldn't live without for even three days. It's precious. They hand it over to you, a total stranger, and you know what you do? The guys responded in unison. You ride it. Right. I was done. But seriously, where's my bike? They traded subtle glances and, as if on cue, began humming the star-spangled banner as they lined up the bags. Then, as always, A.J. took charge, standing tall with his hand over his heart, looking proudly up at the flag like a G.I. on a World War II recruiting poster. Soon they were all facing the flagpole, singing their hearts out. Automatically, I put my hand on my heart and turned. There, just below Old Glory and the Michigan State flag, was my yellow porter bike, secured with Eagle Scout efficiency by a shitload of sticky black duct tape. It would take a hatchet to cut it down. And the home of the brave dissolved into laughter. My mind flashed to the Irish girl I met earlier. Erica, was it? She must have seen my bike taped up there. How else would she know it was yellow? My respect for the captivating Celt soared. AJ spoke up. I ran across you and Vicky spooning in the moonlight, and I couldn't resist. I looked over at Smitty questioningly and pointed to my bike. He just shrugged. Nobody tells me nothing. Cap Riley looked down at us, amused. Since we now know you can't sing worth the damn, any of you ladies gonna make real history this summer? A few of us glanced towards the long, two-story freight shack that ran the length of the Arnoldine dock. Hand-carved in the red and green wood siding, partially hidden by a Mountain Dew vending machine, was a list that went back over a hundred years. The dock porter's very own Cooperstown. Most of us just referred to it as The List. It was a sacred site that enshrined the top luggage haulers of all time under the scrawled heading Blackjack. Blackjack, A.J. said, somber. 21 in the hopper, added Fly, reverential. It's impossible, Cap, I called up. They outlawed crossbars. Nobody's ridden Blackjack since 1975. High-rise Jimmy Oliver, a gravelly voice interrupted. We all turned to look. It was Rick. He was paused in mid-scoop eyes far away, as if recalling a moving speech by Vince Lombardi or Kirk Gibson's epic home run off Goose Gossage in the 1984 World Series. You know that load? I asked. Rick snorted. <laughs> know it. I helped him stack it, and crossbars had nothing to do with it. High Rise could have rode 21 pie-eyed on a big wheel. Rick resumed scooping a fresh pile for dramatic effect while I tried to imagine luggage stacked on a big wheel. Then he looked right at me. See, high rise, he didn't have a crossbar. A shocking revelation. The science, physics, and insanity behind that legendary load was something we had spent years dissecting. We all agreed that it was impossible to ride 21 suitcases without custom handlebars, called longhorns by the veterans, connected with a welded-on crossbar to hang extra bags. When an island ordinance passed, deeming it unsafe to ride with crossbars, Blackjack was considered out of reach forever. 
But now to hear that the legendary high-rise Jimmy Oliver, the last name carved on the list, rode an astonishing 21 pieces of luggage without a crossbar was a collective gut punch to our pride. I began peppering Rick with questions. But how'd he see over the load? Was it triple wings? How heavy were the bags? What was the secret? But Rick was rolling away. Compared to the greats on that list, we were all just children in his eyes. I watched him with a newfound respect. It's like Rick was at Kitty Hawk. Foster spoke up as he sorted a set of matching bags tagged with his hotel. Yep, and trust me, he'll never give up the code, he smiled at me. Don't worry about it. There's tip men and there's load men. You'll always be a tip man, Jack. A lean, mean, tip-scoring machine. He turned his attention back to the bags. I pondered the comment. Not convinced Foster meant it as a compliment. Tip man? What did he mean by that? I'd ridden plenty of big loads. Just because I also understood the subtleties of the gratuity phase of the process should not diminish my accomplishments one bit. Hell, that's why we did it, right? For tips? But if that were true, why wasn't there a century-old hand-carved list honoring the biggest tips? Later that day, I was organizing a wad of cash on the dock when I was distracted by the high-pitched whine of an electric engine. Heads turned towards the source. Driving towards me in a bright green golf cart tricked out with a flatbed was Gordon Whitaker. In the passenger seat was an unsmiling 40-something dressed in a black button-down shirt under an expensive black blazer. His face was pale, as if he hadn't been in the sun in ages. Gordon was not the same loosey-goosey kid he used to be, although his fashion sense remained consistent. He was wearing a pink pastel shirt and a light blue tie, his blonde hair neatly combed and groomed. I walked to the cart, curious. What the hell is this ugly beast, I asked. It occurred to me that Gordon and I had not spoken once this summer. To say our paths diverged since the old days would be an understatement. Gordon ran many of his father's businesses, real estate, development, and upscale shops in the northern Michigan towns of Harbor Springs, Petoskey, and Mackinac Island. He was, I'd heard, damn good at it. Meanwhile, I'd become skilled at organizing sweaty, crumpled $1 bills into tidy green stacks. I guess everyone has a calling. Gordon smiled. His perfect white teeth gleamed in the bright island sun. He gestured to the cart. It's the future. Beautiful, right? He leaned into me, sniffed and grimaced. Jesus, you smell like a brewery. The future of what, I said. Luggage. New revenue stream. This is the prototype. Hauls 40 bags. It's fast. And it never tries to sleep with hotel guests. It's motorized, Gordon. You can't legally drive this on the streets. Eh, we're on that. Next summer. Here's the thing. We're proposing a baggage service. Found a crazy loophole in the city's written charter. He looked over at the man in black, now playing the expert. City charter reads like a third grader wrote it, just full of vague clauses. The man in black nodded, but it was clearly obligatory. I needed a moment to process this. Gordon was, understandably, not up to speed on the legacy of dock portering. And even if he was, he'd probably find it all a bit childish. He was just sharing a statement of fact, unaware of how this might affect me and my brothers in arms. Just business. He leaned in close with a salesman's winning grin. Maybe you want to run it for us, Jack. Management track. Who knows the docks better than you? Make your old man proud. 
A luggage service that puts us all out of a job, I shot back. Well, everyone but you. I took a deep breath and exhaled. A golf cart can never replace a dock porter. Never. A light smile touched his lips. He was unfazed. He fired up the cart and began a slow roll down the dock. Then he stopped and turned to the man in black. Technically, he's right. We can't leave the dock. Let's walk. I'll show you around the offices. My dad's waiting. The man in black looked around the dock with vague disgust. He pinched his nose from the aroma of distant horse crap. This place stinks. They climbed out of the cart and headed towards town. It occurred to me that Gordon's metamorphosis from unsteady, tow-headed island boy to the streamlined force of nature was both impressive and sad. He had just threatened the entire Doc Porter ecosystem while simultaneously reminding me of my strained relationship with my dad. He may have become a jerk, but he was not an untalented jerk. AJ approached from behind and put a brotherly arm on my shoulder. Don't sweat it, Jackie. Every summer the Whitakers try to get rid of us, and every summer we magically reappear, like that bad penny from somewhere in time. He acted out the scene. Richard! Richard! AJ loved Somewhere in Time references and weaved them into every conversation at any chance he had. The movie was filmed on the island ten years earlier and was probably the closest he'd ever been to a real movie set. Fly looked over. Jack, you know that blonde shipper from when you guys were kids. Why the disrespect? I'm guessing the Whitakers think dock porters are out-of-control maniacs that threaten the classy veneer of the island. Fly took it in for a moment. I can see that. Spangler chimed in. I think it's a gross misrepresentation, personally. Smitty called over. So's this! He let out a long, loud, wet fart. Jesus, I thought. The Whitakers are right. I looked over to Spangler, who was watching Gordon with his mystery friend trot down the docks, deep in business chatter. He removed his notepad from his pocket and jotted down a few observations. He saw the same thing I did. The guy in the black jacket was, as we like to say, not Mackinac. We shared a look. Spangler was on the story, whatever it was. The 130 boat from St. Ignace, July 1st, 1989. The dock was, again, awash in tourists. Every half hour, all day long, it was a brand new one-act play called Tips. AJ, the actor, was devoid of any morals when it came to charming hotel guests. I watched him from the corner of my eye as he appraised the approaching crowd of tourists like a master chef inspecting fresh produce. He reached into his pocket and pulled something out. He began talking to himself as if he were rehearsing lines backstage before opening night. He pinned a plastic name tag onto his hotel golf shirt. It read, Carlo Bologna, Bologna, Italy. He took a deep breath. His face magically transformed from the cocky East Detroit Italian kid he was to a forlorn immigrant boy. The toothy grin dropped and he looked out towards the lake, willing himself to start missing his mama and papa in the old country. All that was missing to complete the act was a warm loaf of Italian bread and a leather rucksack. AJ approached the family of four as the father, a balding man in a purple button-down, was reaching for a suitcase. Hello, you stay at the, uh, the Huron Inn? The man looked up. Yes, we are. Benvenuta, my name is Carlo. I'm from Bologna, Italy. I haul, how you say, the, 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 the suitcases in my bicicletta, in the basket, no? He pointed to his porter bike. 
The wife, a cute tennis mom, beamed, charmed instantly. In the late 80s, most Midwesterners didn't travel much. The idea of a real Italian to help them with their bags was nine levels of quaint. Absolutely something to tell the downstate neighbors about when they returned. Oh, honey, look, Carlo, he's Italian. Then to AJ, yes, these are all our bags. Bene, bene, I take them for you. You go, you no worry. This is my job. Go up the street, turn right, pass it through the town, and the hotel is, um, how you say it? He looked over to me, foe helplessly, struggling for the phrase, forcing me to become an unwilling accomplice to his con job. Jack, how you say, ah, my English is not so good. I answered without making eye contact with him to avoid breaking out in laughter and ruining his carefully constructed scene. It's on the left, past the yacht club, you'll see the sign. I called to the family, playing the helpful American friend. Exactly. On the left, past the yacht club, you see the sign. You go now. I catch up. Go, go. They smiled and shuffled off as A.J. grinned, his eyes lingering for a moment too long on the long-legged collegiate daughter. She flashed a smile at him as she passed. Carlo turned to me, satisfied, waiting for them to move out of earshot. And scene. The boys gave him a respectful golf clap, and he took a bow, thanking his fans. Grazie, 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 grazie. I turned away and scanned my own notes for today's check-ins. Unlike many of the other hotels, quaint inns, and guest houses that sprung up like lilacs, my hotel was, well, a bit of a dump. But the price was right, and for many on a budget, it worked just fine. The Waterview Inn and Boarding House, affectionately known as the Wibho, was unabashedly old school in every sense of the word. The only time it ever became an issue was with honeymooners. Pre-internet, there was no checking a place out online, no posted reviews, no message boards, and for honeymooners, an uptight, horny demographic on a good day, things could get dicey. When they realized that the room they'd be making sweet love in for the next three to five days housed a peculiar odor and rust stains in the bathtub, things sometimes got awkward. And of course, the first check-ins today were honeymooners. The wheelers, according to my notes. I spotted them instantly. Unlike most of the other couples wandering and dazed, the wheelers looked to be in love, with no hint of that married thousand-yard stare. I closed my eyes and threw some air punches, loosening my neck muscles like a boxer. It was time for me to make some money.